I have been blessed by every man that has been voted in as a deacon and even those those that were here when I came. And Lord, they have encouraged and strengthened me, been a help to this local body. I pray tonight as we talk about this passage and a couple others about the office of a deacon, may you just guide us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As a Baptist church, we strongly believe, in fact, one of the distinctives of a Baptist church is that we believe in two offices. Number one office is that of a pastor. Number two office is that of a deacon. Paul, in this particular passage that I've read to you here, is giving to us, if you will, the order of a church and how it should conduct itself. It's quite noteworthy in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, which is also included as one of the pastoral epistles, that Paul says there that he was giving to Titus that he would set things in order. And in setting things in order, you find after Titus 1, 5, that he gives the qualifications of a deacon. Well, here in Timothy, as we read, Paul is telling this young disciple of his, this young preacher, the very same thing. We didn't read these verses, but in 14 through 15, he writes, and I want you to notice here the first part of verse 14, these things. In other words, I'm giving you, Paul says, these things so you know how you ought us to behave thyself. Now, when Paul says that, that's kind of a cute little phrase there. We use that for children, right? We might say to some of the little children that are here tonight, now you ought to behave yourself. Well, that's not what he's saying to the preacher and the deacons and the adults that are here. Uh, I want to tell you, don't run up and down the aisles now and don't jump on the furniture. That's not what he's saying about behaving. The idea of behaving here is the conduct, the manner of life that you ought to have in and out of the church doors. This was not just for Timothy as the pastor, but this was instruction that was given to the church as a whole on how they ought to conduct themselves. And the reason for this is because in Timothy, he talks about how the church is the house of God. It's the church of the living God. It is a place that has the pillar and ground of truth. And therefore, if any place there ought to be a, a something that is set in order, it ought to be the church. So may I help you tonight to understand, just kind of bringing things into focus, what this office of a deacon is all about. The Bible is very clear about the office of a deacon, what it looks like, what the spiritual qualities are. And so let's look not only at First Timothy, but just reference a couple other passages and understand the overall qualifications of a deacon. Hold your place here and turn back to the book of Acts, please. Acts chapter 6 and verses 3 and 4, or verses 1 through 4, actually. Let me note a couple things in this particular book here. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. 
but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It is here tonight that we find, and I want you to give you number one, the choosing of a deacon, the choosing of a deacon. It is here that we find amidst the controversy and problems that these deacons were chosen. Now, what was the problem? Well, there were those who were the Grecians, that was the Greek culture Jews, and the Hebrews, the natives, if you will, their widows were not uh, being cared for equally. In other words, the Grecian widows were not cared for as much as the Hebrew widows. Now, to be fair, probably this problem was one of simple oversight and not purposeful neglect. We're not all sure the complaints that came through, uh, the calls that came into the secretary's office of that church. We're not sure the things that got written on the back of a bulletin and turned into the preacher or one of the deacons as far as what was going on. But we knew there was problems because it came to us in the scripture here. And Peter and the apostles come out and say something very interesting. They say to them, I want you to look out among you. That means that the people of the church had a say in who their leaders were, who the people that were qualified, they had some way of saying, we respect these people. We see the manner of life in these people. We note the conduct in these people's lives. And Peter and the apostles are saying, we're going to select out some men that can care for this. Now, please understand, Peter's not saying as a preacher, and I'm not saying as a preacher that any type of work like that is beneath a preacher. Yesterday, I had my jeans on, T-shirt, and I had some people that didn't recognize me, and they said, who are you? And I had, I had a hat on. I said, I'm the preacher here. But I was here doing some work because I, I wanted to lead by example and I wanted to show people that I could roll up my sleeves and do work like anybody else. But when Peter and the apostles said that you are to look out for you amongst you, people that will do the work here of attending to the widows, it is due to the fact that as the preacher, they realize this. Their main focus in the ministry was to prayer and the study of the Word of God to be able to declare the Word of God. And therefore, if they got involved in every aspect that was there in the ministry, they wouldn't have time for that which was most important. Again, it doesn't mean I make visits as a pastor. I go pray with people. I desire to help out widows. But we have been brought in other people such as deacons that can help out with those things. And when the apostles said to look out for them, notice here the choosing. There were certain qualifications that they spoke about. Would you look at what he says here in verse number 3? He makes mention here that there are to be men of honest report. The word report is the same word that is translated elsewhere as witness. In other words, the deacons that were selected were to be people that had a solid testimony that was visible before every person. Inside the church walls, Outside the church walls, they were to be men of report. 
They sh- it should be reported of them. It should be witnessed before all that these men are of good integrity and good character. But then he says they're to be men full of the Holy Ghost. The word full means to be controlled by. A man who is a leader here at Calvary Baptist or any church ministry ought to demonstrate the Spirit's control in their life. It does not mean that that man is uh, uh, blameless of everything and never commits a fault, but there ought to be such a spirit control that that man demonstrates peace and joy and temperance and all of the fruit that is demonstrated through the Holy Spirit here, and then he's to be full of wisdom. These are to be men of practical good sense, men who have God's wisdom and not man's. You know, I I think you understand this. There's a lot of wisdom out there that doesn't jive with the Bible. There's a lot of wisdom of the world that people say, well, this is the way I do things. Let me just tell you sometimes, sometimes God's ways are contrary to man's ways. And it is imperative that a preacher, that a deacon, that a leader of this church be a man that have not the world's wisdom, but God's wisdom. So Peter and the apostles said, look out among you. We want people here that are of honest report, that are full of the Holy Ghost, and that are full of wisdom. But now notice number two, the characterization of the deacon. I love this word that is used here, the word deacon, and actually the word deacon is not used. But the Greek word diakonos is seen three times. Would you know with me, first of all, verse number one, do you see the word And you might want to mark this, underline these words or circle them. In verse 1, the word ministration. Do you see that word? Notice in verse number 2, the word serve. Mark that word. In verse number 4, the word ministry. Those three words, for whatever reason the King James translators translated them differently, do you know what one Greek word it is? It's the word diakonos from which we get the word serve, the deacon, which means to serve, to have a ministry of service, to serve, to go ahead and give of oneself. So the word deacon literally means to serve or a servant. Now, while this is an office where certain requirements are given, it is a work of service. It is a work of ministry. Two things that I like to note about the office of a deacon. Number one, it does not tell us here that a deacon is necessarily a teacher. It does not mean that a deacon cannot teach. I have been in churches long enough to know that there are some deacons who can teach, some deacons who cannot teach. But regardless of that, it's not saying, well, all deacons are teachers or all teachers are deacons. That's not what it's saying here. It's just simply a ministry of service. We found that Philip was used as a preacher. He was blessed of God in a great way. But secondly, that I note about this position of a deacon is that it's not only just, it's not simply relegated as a teaching position, but it is not a ruling position. You see, the pastor, by the nature of the titles that is given, that is of overseer, by his title, qualifications, and injunctions, we see that the pastor's position is different than that of a deacon. While the deacons will be beneficial to the pastor and the church body, his office is of service, not ruling. 
And every wise pastor, when I came here to Calvary Baptist, I remember being asked, what do you believe about a pastor? What do you believe about a deacon? And I remember writing down these words. I believe that every pastor, though a pastor has this function and deacons have this function, every pastor would be wise to highly consider the men that God has allowed to be deacons. And by God's grace, I've utilized our men for accountability, for guidance on many, many things. Now go back to 1 Timothy. Brother Ron, am I doing okay so far? All right. I'm going 120 miles an hour here. I'm sorry about that. Now look at the credentials of a deacon. 1 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 8 and 9, the credentials. Notice here, first of all, the character qualities in his personal life. If you walk through these verses here, we first of all see the character qualities of his life. Number one, it mentions that he's to be grave. Now, we don't use that word a whole lot. What does grave mean? It means serious-minded. It means that a deacon is going to realize the importance and the value of a task. It's a positive word which denotes the reverence that comes with a noble character. Now, it does not mean that a person who is a deacon, that he never laughs, okay? I, I love to joke around, and I, I love to have some fun. Our staff, we, we have fun from time to time, and getting together with our deacons, it's enjoyable with one another. But a deacon knows when to put aside the frivolous and to be serious about certain things. That's the idea of grave. Number two, he's not double-tongued. The word double-tongued comes from two different Greek words, which means saying the same thing twice. In other words, a person who is double-tongued is hypocritical in their speech. It could be somebody that says one thing and lives another way, or says one thing and means another. It could mean making different representations to different people about the same thing. But whatever you think this word means, it forbids in a deacon any type of manipulative or deceitful talk. Number three, notice this. I want you to look at this for just a minute. In verse 8, not given to much wine. Now, as you look at verse 3, for the pastor qualifications, it says, not given to wine. So you saying, pastor tonight, pastor, you have to stay away from alcohol, but the deacons, they can go ahead and sip a little bit. No, I don't think so. I'm not going to park here tonight. In fact, alcohol is a whole nother sermon. In fact, it could be 10 sermons. Because alcohol has ruined more families. And more Christians today are grabbing a hold of, well, I can socially drink and I can take hold of this. Let me just tell you something. You're playing with fire. You're playing with fire. And you're setting something in your children and grandchildren that they might not be able to turn off and that may destroy their lives but when it talks here about not giving a wine, can I say this for leaders? That it is imperative that as you walk through Scripture, let me ask this question. As you walk through Scripture and you look through alcohol, do you think there's a lot of warnings about alcohol? Yes or no? Yes. Absolutely there is. 
So I think it's imperative for every person, but especially for deacons, that they become those who refrain. It's very, very, very important. Notice here another thing that is given, not greedy of filthy lucre. That's an interesting way of naming things. But let's face it, wherever there's money, there's potential for problems, is there not? I can't tell you how many people I've met who have come to this church and left other churches, or throughout my time of ministry, people have said, I left that church because they mishandled no money. This deacon did this, that deacon did that, these problems. Can I say money often is an irresistible magnet for people? There are many who would get into the office of a deacon in order that they might steal money or misdirect things to their own gain. That's what's meant by this idea of filthy lucre. They are of a base or sordid gain. So the person, the deacon, who holds this office has the opportunity by the mere fact that he helps with finances, that he might distribute to the widows or do other things, there's a great possibility he might be dishonest. Wasn't there one of the 12 with Jesus who was dishonest when it came to money? Was there not one throughout Scripture? We can look at uh, uh, Balaam who, who did certain ministry things for money's sake or the sons of Eli that robbed from the people so they could have more. So let me just say, if there's people throughout Scripture that will do that, there's people in the New Testament church that probably will try to do something like that. This position is a very important position because of the possible problem. The deacon is not to be somebody who appears to be motivated by money or is a lover of money. Now, this means, this does not mean that a deacon cannot be a person who's made money in his life. This does not mean that he has to give away all excess of his money just to show that he is not a lover of money. All this comes to is his very demeanor, his tone of life, and the resume that follows him. But notice something else about his personal quality. Talks about holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. Now, I believe this phrase has two implications to it when it comes to a deacon's life. First of all, every deacon must be a capable defender of God's word. A deacon should have been saved for a period of time so that way he can defend the Word of God. Now, he may not defend it necessarily like a preacher defends it. He may not know every, everything. It may not have gone to school. And that's not a problem. But he ought to be able to say, I believe that Jesus is God's Son, and here's why. I believe that Jesus rose again bodily from the grave, and here's what I believe about it. I believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, and here's verses to back this up. And this is what I believe. And so, therefore, he ought to be a capable defender. But secondly, and more importantly to the text, deacons must have a life that match what they believe. Oh, that's so important. They must have a life that shows exactly what they believe. A deacon may not have the gift or qualification of teaching, but he must have a clear conscience as he attempts to comfort others in his role. Well, that's his character qualities in his personal life. But now I want you to notice verse number 10, his critique by the church body. Now, it's interesting what verse 10 says, and let these also first be, what's the next word? 
proved, proved. Now, it's interesting to me that when you look at verse number six under the qualifications of a pastor, it says that a pastor is not to be a novice. What does that mean? Well, I look at it as a new convert. In other words, somebody gets saved on Sunday morning and the following week we say, hey, brother so-and-so got saved last week. He's going to become a deacon now or a preacher. No, I think there has to be some life experience. I think there needs to be some working and studying in the Word of God and some attendance of uh, and faithful uh, service through the local church where people can see them. The same thing with a pastor should be the same thing with a deacon. Not only should it be a novice, that is not a new convert, but it ought to be where a church, in order to prove whether a person is full of the Holy Ghost, full of wisdom, men of integrity and of honest report, before they get put up, they need to be here for a period of time. Now, there's no magic in this number, but we have said here and have talked about at length about this, that before anybody becomes a deacon here at Calvary Baptist, they need to be here for a year. They need to be here in order for people to see them. I like for a deacon to be here Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and see that they're supporting the work of God. See them get involved in the ministry and let them work alongside people. And the word prove has this idea of testing or, or, or putting here to the test. And therefore, the approval ultimately is with God. But when you have a say-so in your vote on meetings, you say, yeah, I see so-and-so. They're faithful to God's house. They're serving They've shown these qualifications that are here. So this idea of proving here is testing or approving. And a person here who is observed then is brought forth. The Bible tells us also here about him, this idea of his critique by the church body. Notice in verse number 10, he is to be found blameless. Now, let me say, if you and I thought about blameless in the sense that often we think about it, it probably would eliminate all of us, including myself. But here's the idea of blameless. It does not mean a person who is perfect, but it literally means a person who is unaccused. That does not mean that this person does not have any faults or has never had any problems. But it does mean that there's no person that could come back to him and say, you've done me wrong and you haven't made it right. A person in the position of a pastor, qualification of blameless. A person in the position of a deacon who also is to be found blameless ought to, with the best of knowledge that they have, be able to know that within the church, within their neighborhood, within their family, that they have people that they have tried to make things right and that there is nothing between them. Now, it may be on their part, but by the best that you know, you've tried to make things right with them. Now, notice, third thing about these credentials is the companion in marriage. Look at verses 11 to 12. He talks here 
about the wives. I don't mean to single him out, but I've done this from time to time. Brother Dwayne Smith, when before we put him up as a deacon, I sat down with he and his dear wife, Brenda. And I, I talked with her a little bit, and I, I asked her, I said, is there any reason why he shouldn't be a deacon? Now, look, if anybody knows, it's, it's her, correct? Right, Brenda? And boy, you ought to have heard some of the stories she told me. I'll tell you what. No, no. It wasn't anything like that. But notice how the deacon's wives here, they also have certain things. Now, they're not being brought into the office, but you understand whether you're a preacher, whether you're a deacon, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, some type of minister, your wife can make or break you. It's very important. I realize as a pastor, you realize that as those that are deacons here today, but I want you to notice here about this companion of marriage, this aspect of the deacon himself, and where it talks in verse 12, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. Now, there's a lot of varying opinions. If you grab commentaries and look through all the commentaries, you'll have various opinions. But what has been the position of this church early on, what has been the position that I have had to this point here, is this. And first of all, I want to rule out a couple of obvious things. This does not require a deacon to be married. There may be a possibility we have a deacon in the future whose spouse has passed away or somebody who's been single their whole life, but yet has fulfilled these qualifications. Although it is suitably best for a person to be married, this is not what Paul's saying. And I also believe that this rules out a woman being a deacon, since it does not say the wife of one husband. But here's the bottom line in understanding this, is that a man ought to be faithful and true to the one woman in his lifetime. Now, there's a popular view of this phrase that implies a teaching against polygamy, the husband of one wife. Now, while polygamy is wrong, it does seem to have a strong appeal today to interpret this passage that way because of how rampant divorce is amongst us and to be able to accommodate those that have been divorced. But there does not seem to be a problem of polygamy in the New Testament the Church of Paul's day that I really read much. And to help clarify this, I want you to go over one chapter to chapter 5, verse number 9. Look at this verse with me, if you will. The Bible says here, let not a widow be taken, this is referring to a woman here, a widow, be taken into the number under three score years, that's 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Now, outside of the switching of terms of man and wife and all that type of stuff, can you see how there's a somewhat of a, a, a congruity here in these statements here? This is the same Greek expression except for the switching of terms. Now, I personally believe that whatever one verse means, the other must follow in suit. In other words, if you compare the office of a pastor, the qualifications, that he is to be the husband of one wife, and then the deacon, that he is to be the husband of one wife, and you compare it with chapter 5, verse 9, 
You've got to ask yourself a question here. Are these talking about polygamy? Because if the qualifications are talking about polygamy, then chapter 5, verse 9 must be talking about polyandry, a wife with multiple husbands. And I have a question. Was multiple husbands a problem with women in this day? I don't think so. Now, again, I think God's clear intent about marriage is made evident through Scripture. God hates divorce. There are those that are here today who have been divorced. And I want you to know there's a pastor that I don't look across this audience and go, oh yeah, divorced, you're over there. Well, you've stayed married all these years, you're over here. Let me just tell you something. All of us have had things in our life, whether it's in regards to our marriage, whether it's in regards to our personal life, whatever it may be, that can be blemishes on us. And I'm not here to divide all that, but I can say this, that I personally believe that when it comes to the office of a deacon and the office of a pastor, that ought to be somebody who has not been divorced. Now notice verse number 12, his children at home. His children at home. Ruling their children in their own house as well. I think there's principles to understand when you talk about a deacon and a family. What is the basic building block of this church? It's the family. We here, and we're go- this year we've got some special things going on. We're going to be doing a series on the family beginning after Vacation Bible School. Going to be in encouraging some families to be a part of this. We'll be preaching on Sunday morning about the family. And we want to help strengthen the family. But while we are here as a church trying to strengthen the family, who's trying to destroy the family? Satan. So therefore, it is quite notable to see in the qualifications that there is something important about a deacon's family. Now, what does this mean for a deacon? Well, I think every deacon ought to provide for his family physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And the children, while they're in his home, must submit to his leadership. Now, you say, preacher, are they to be perfect? I mean, I'm sure you've heard all the jokes about deacon's kids and preacher's kids, and those jokes abound. Sadly, it's been because deacons and pastors have not done what they can prayerfully and helpfully to manage those under their roof. But manageable it ought to be while these children are under his roof. Even the best of fathers and mothers have child-related problems. This is why you ought to pray for your preachers. You ought to pray for your deacons who have children at home. And these parents need to find ways to resolve the problems and get involved in their children's lives in responsible and caring ways. And those who are in leadership or aspiring to be part of a position here must note that the first and foremost care and disciples is your own family. I am thrilled every week that I get to preach to you. You don't know how it joys my soul to do what God's called me to do. But do you realize the first person I preach to 
I use preaching lightly as to my wife. Now, just so you know, she does a lot of preaching to me too, I tell you. You ought to be in the car sometimes. That was not a good look. I just got myself in trouble. Dave and Shirley, can I, do you have an extra bedroom tonight? <laughs> no. Great, I'm in trouble with you too. Truthfully, my first disciple is my wife. My first disciples are my children. And how important it is that we hold on to this heritage that God has given to us. The Quaker theologian Elton Trueblood said this, No matter how much a man may be concerned with his work in the world, he cannot normally care about it as much as he cares for his family. This is because we have, in the life of the family, a bigger stake than most of us can ever have in our employment. We can change business associates. We can leave a poor job, but we cannot change sons. If we lose a struggle in our occupational interests, we can try again. But if we lose with our children, our loss is terribly and frighteningly final. Powerful statement amazing. I think the reason for this qualification is obvious. A man's ability to help manage the affairs of God within the church is directly related to his ability to manage his household. If he cannot care for his family properly, then he cannot care for the family of God. Now, in closing tonight, would you look at this one word in verse 13? It's a very operative word, and it connects the qualifications to what is going to be said next. All of these qualifications in these verses are for this reason. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Those who have served well. I'm not talking about those who have just been voted in. But I'm talking about those that have been brought in and have fulfilled their office well. Every man that is ever brought into a position within a local church walks away from being selected from that position with a target on his back. Because the devil to destroy this ministry begins with leadership. I can only speak for myself, but I cannot even begin to tell you the attacks I feel on a weekly basis. The moments I hear the words, give up. The moments I hear the words, it's not worth it. The moments I hear this, well, there's this problem and that problem. And this problem, person's upset with this and that. And it's very easy to go, you know what? I'd be doing something else. 
And then there's temptations that come, and there's everything that comes our way. And what I face, I know the deacons face, and if you are in a position of leadership, you know what the devil's trying to do? He's beginning with the leadership. He wants to destroy. He doesn't come in, just draw a line right down the middle, and all of a sudden the whole thing falls apart, but he just starts pinging people off. And he really works hard at leadership. Why ought you to pray for your pastors? Why ought you to pray for your deacons? Why ought you to pray for your staff? Because we feel every bit of the attacks daily and weekly. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for these qualifications. Lord, I pray that we would fully understand and know this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to have an invitation as is regular tonight. My wife said the piano she'll play in just a moment. But I want to invite our deacons to come right up here for just a moment, please. I want Jim and Ron and Brother Dwayne to make their way right up here, please. Brother Bernie, as I made mention, is uh, with family. And uh, so I want you to note him here tonight. And I want to pray a special word of prayer for these men right here. Every deacon that has been at this church has been my friend. There are some that have served out here. Brother Levengood, I love that man dearly because we've shouldered some battles together early on when I came in this ministry. And these men that are here today, along with Brother Bernie, are helping in this ministry in a great way. Like Aaron and Hur holding up the arms of Moses, to a certain degree, these men are helping me. They're helping you. And I want to encourage you to not only pray for your pastoral staff, pray for these men. All of them have personal things that they face. All of them have struggles like you do. All of them need the prayers of God's people. And we share together about the business of this church and agendas and certain things that go on. And we work together with these things. And I often pray every deacon, every trustee, every leader that's here knows this. My desire with every meeting is that we be unified. Now, we may disagree about things, and we have from time to time. But it's very important that we walk away as friends, love one another, and most importantly, love the Lord. So as I pray for these men, would you quietly in your seat pray for them? Right on my far right, Brother Dwayne, Brother Jim, and Brother Ron. Forgive them for the Bengals tie, but no, I'm just being light here tonight. I'm rooting for them, I think. But do pray. I'm going to pray publicly right now. And you pray just quietly in your seat. And let's ask God to richly bless these dear men.